Welcome to Newton & Co, our latest podcast. I'm here again today with my co-host, David Newton. David, hi. Hi, Chris. Good to be here again. Welcome, everybody. Today, we have, well, she's going to get embarrassed when I say this, but we have a luminary in the photographic world, a name that you, well, some of you will know, some of you may not know, but you certainly 100% know her work. Cathy Moran, it is a great pleasure to have you with us today, former Deputy Director of Nat Geo magazine. Welcome. To tell us a little bit about yourself. You were at Nat Geo for so long. How did you get into photography? What was your start point? Well, first, it's just it's a pleasure to be here with you, and it's uh, it's it's nice to see you both sort of in your uh, natural habitat. I'm used to seeing you in a big convention center in Sharjah. So yes, I I was at National Geographic uh, for a, a very very long time. You know, and I always thought National Geographic would be a, a place where I'd like to wind up, but I had early in my career thought that I would wind up there either as a researcher or, you know, maybe doing something more on, on the writing side. Um, you know, my, my degree was in journalism and English history. But when I graduated college uh, as a part-time job, I actually started, the term used back then was gophering for a photographer who was working for a, a local newspaper. And uh, I just, I, I loved that. I loved the, the, the thrill of you know, watching him chase the news, of being in the dark room, seeing how it all came together. So when I I did actually have an opportunity to to interview for National Geographic and started about a year after college in what they call the secretarial service, which was actually a fantastic way into an organization because it was a team of young women back then. Uh, eventually, it was men and women, but you floated through the entire organization and you had an opportunity to see how all of the different divisions worked. And it was quickly apparent that photography was what it was all about at National Geographic. And it was really, it was just the, the lifeblood of, of the magazine. And um, I thought, okay, this is it. This is where I want to be. And of course, knowing very little about photography itself, you know, coming at it as the geographic always does, thinking about narrative visually instead of with words. So that's really how it happened. I had a temporary assignment in, in the photo department of the magazine. There was an opening to work for two photo editors. I applied, they hired me, and that was it. I just felt every step of the way that there was great opportunity and I had great mentors within within the magazine. And it just, it took off from there. I was really lucky. So over your time there, you worked with many great photographers. How would you describe your role when you reached the deputy director level? What were you doing? How were you interacting with those photographers? You know, I had been photo editing for a, a very long time and was was really happy in that role when I was when I was asked uh, by Whitney Johnson to to be her deputy. It really took me by surprise, and it was a tough decision because uh, I loved doing the stories and I loved working that closely with the photographers. But stepping into the role of deputy, what I realized was that it was actually a great opportunity to not only work more closely with my colleagues, the, the photo editors, but that it was a moment where I was actually able to work with a, a much broader range of photographers than I would have been able to do otherwise. Because, you know, I was, you know, I, I, I did do a wide range of stories, but the bulk of them were about wildlife and conservation. So in, in a lot of ways, it was those last two and a half years 
were incredible because it was I was able to meet with and and work with so many more photographers than I would have been able to do otherwise. But you're doing it at a very different level because you're not as intimately involved in in the storytelling as you would be if you were the photo editor working directly with uh, the photographer. You're at that point you are a bit removed and you're just trying to offer guidance. You know this is working. Have you thought about that? You're almost there. Or hey, this is fantastic. You're done. Let's get it into layout. Call it a day. So it it was it was more about sort of coaching and encouraging and and advising as opposed to actually producing, which is where the real fun is. So, given that a lot of your, I mean, a lot of the work you've done with uh, Nat Geo has been conservation based. I mean, where did that love of conservation and wildlife come from? You said you did journalism to begin with. I'm trying to work out the genesis of this. How did how did that come about? When I first joined the magazine as a photo editor, you know, even though the magazine was known for incredible natural history photography, it felt to me that my colleagues at the time were, were taking on the natural history story, sort of holding their noses. You know, they wanted to be doing the science and they wanted to be doing the city stories or the culture stories. And I just thought, hey, I'll do these stories. I'll take them on. This this looks like fun to me. But increasingly, it, it felt that doing just pure natural history, which is great and has a place, and I love it, was was missing a big part of the story. And what, what started to happen at the same time was that there were several photographers who had started out in their careers as photojournalists. Mike Nichols, Nick Nichols, Chris Johns, Joel Sartori, all of these guys, you know, had sort of gone the classic route of, of photojournalists doing the newspapers and then, you know, advancing their careers by coming to the geographic and again, taking on those culture stories, those, you know, geopolitical pieces and whatnot. And at a certain point, they all started to express an interest in doing the natural history stories. But as coming at it with that sort of journalistic mindset, it just wasn't enough for them to be doing the natural history. They they were all stepping back and looking at what was happening on the larger landscape. You know, what were the, the human wildlife interactions? What were the issues? What were the solutions? So that, it, you know, increasingly uh, the photographers were... We're, we're tackling the stories in a very different way. And when Chris Johns, who, you know, was really, he and Nick were really the two leading the charge to change the approach to the storytelling, Chris eventually became the editor of the magazine. And so for him at that moment, you know, it really was important that we were approaching all of these stories with a very serious uh, conservation angle in mind. And that didn't mean that that the natural history photography wasn't just as important. We still had to have people who could make those images and tell that side of the story. But Chris felt passionately that all of those other aspects of the story had to be told as well. And this, I mean, this has led you on to founding the International League of Conservation Photographers, I guess. It was probably the, the start point in your work in conservation. It seemed like, uh, I guess, an obvious next step. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about what is the International League of Conservation Photographers and how do you see the role of photography in conservation? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I was a founding member, but the International League of Conservation Photographers was really the brainchild of Christina Mittermeier. 
And, you know, Christina was working in a, as a freelancer, as a photographer, and uh, as, as a book editor. And um, she really, she, she was the one who I think most keenly felt that conservation photography as something that people were actively pursuing was sort of happening under the radar. People were doing it, but there wasn't that, that awareness that there was really a community of photographers out there who were sort of really tackling this and, and changing the approach to the storytelling. So credit goes fully to Christina in, in convening a group of, of photographers and editors, bringing us all together and saying, you know, look, you know, let's join forces and let's really try to, to change the conversation here. So all kudos to her on that. And of course, you know, there were a lot of photographers who really embraced this and, and felt that community was sort of critical for them in, in terms terms of feeling like there was a place for their storytelling. So, you know, the, the International League of Conservation Photographers is still going strong, actually just opened the application process for new members. So if anyone's interested in that, by all means, go to the website and take a look. And, you know, it has grown enormously since early days. You know, it's, it, it is, I think, truly international now uh, in ways that we could only have hoped to have been in the beginning. But it, it really is, I think that what it does more than anything is that it does provide that community for this particular group of storytellers, an opportunity for them all to come together, to share, to learn from each other. There's no, some great conservation-based imagery around these days, but our politicians don't seem to take too much notice of it or pay lip service to it. Do you think that people like yourself who are not photographers have an important role in connecting that imagery to the people who make the decisions? You know, as journalists, we're, we're telling the stories. It gets a little murky when you when you start advocating. Because then when you move on to the next story, someone may not be as willing to, to work with you. So there are some lanes that are tricky to navigate. I, I think what's important in the role of, of editor is to work with writers and photographers to ensure that the stories are being done and that they're being published. And if NGOs have an opportunity then to, to use that work to elevate the issues, then I, I think that that kind of partnering is, is a good thing. You know, oftentimes the stories are published, the photography is out there. It's sort of the evidence, I think, that the NGOs need to be able to then get on with their messaging, their campaigning. But it's hard to mix journalism and advocacy. So I do think it's about telling the story, getting it out there, and then maybe letting others do the campaigning. And as an editor, we'll come back to your your editing side of things. You've worked on something like 300 plus stories, uh, which is uh, it's a phenomenal number. Are there any that really stand out in your mind for the story they told, maybe the images contained within them, the messaging behind them, anything that really sticks in your mind? Well, you know, I've done a lot of stories that I'm, I'm really proud of, but nothing can touch the mega transect project that Nick Nichols did. David Quammen was the writer, and they did it in partnership with Dr. Uh, J. Michael Fay who at the time was um, with the Wildlife Conservation Society. And it was a three-part series that ran in the magazine. And Mike Fay's goal was to walk from, I'm going to get it all mixed up now, but basically 
Congo across to Gabon and not come out and, and along the way look for areas that were the most impacted and least impacted by the human footprint and try to look at the impact that that was having on wildlife, wild places, human communities. And Mike and Mike walked continuously uh, for over a year. He, he never came out. Nick and, and David Quammen came and went over the course of the trek. It was a powerful, it was powerful storytelling. It was powerful photography. But the ultimate outcome was that Mike did take those photographs and he met with then President Bongo uh, of Gabon uh, in a hotel room in New York City. I, I guess uh, that President Bongo was there for the opening of um, the United Nations session. And they sat in a hotel room and Mike showed uh, him Nick's photographs. And he supposedly turned to, to Mike and said, I, I didn't know that we had this in my in my country and this must be protected. And he went back home to Gabon and he mandated the creation of the national park system. So that is the power of photography. You know, the, those parks were created in large part thanks to the mega transect and to Nick's photography. So, you know, you, you don't get a lot of that over <laughs> the course <laughs> of a career. So, you know, in, in terms of real impact, I, I think that really that that was an amazing moment. You know, another another story that, that really stood out for me was something that, that Brian Scary did on right whales. We worked with a conservation group that was, at, at that point, they, they had a database of photography for every living northern right whale that was still, you know, swimming at, the, at that point. And we we took every one of those photographs. And in, in the context of, of Brian's story with his beautiful photography, we did a double gatefold so that, in essence, you could hold in your hands an entire species. That story uh, was used to lobby to have shipping lanes uh, changed during breeding season. You know, so again, there are just certain stories, certain moments along the way where you you realize that, yes, it's an important story to tell, but that the story will have impact. And those moments are, you know, again, they're, they're few and far between, but when they come together, they're really powerful. You know, and then there are stories that, that come along the way and, and the photography is just so, so powerful that you, you can't help but feel honored to, to work with that photographer. I mean, anything that Brent Sturton touches, you know, it's like, wow, I get to look at your photography or it's just incredible. David Dubelay, Jennifer Hayes, you know, it's, it's a privilege to work with photographers who are as committed to the storytelling as, as photographers at National Geographic are. Notice you talk in terms of stories rather than images, and maybe that's a reflection of the fact that the Nat Geo shoots tend to be much longer than other shoots that photographers take on. What's your whole approach to setting up a story as opposed to commissioning a shoot? You know, we, we always think of the photography in, in terms of, of the visual narrative. And a lot of photographers out there who they make wonderful, wonderful images, but they're not necessarily telling a story. They're just making great photographs. And you can have 30 beautiful images of a lion. And I, and I can't take a single thing away from any one of those photographs. But collectively, they don't add up to anything. I mean, you've you've got to have the portrait. You've got to have pride behavior. You've you've got to have predation. You've you know again, 
it, for us, I think it's important that you have that that human wildlife interaction. What are the issues? What are the, what, what are the what are the solutions? So when we're thinking about how a story comes together, we're thinking about you know how we make all of those very different images that are going to add up to as as full a story as as the words themselves. And I think that that's the difference when when we talk about you know visual narrative. You know, in that said, there are photographs that tell a story in a single image that have all of those elements in them that, that you need. But it really is about, it, it's visual diversity as much as anything and being able to make those images that bring the story alive on the page. But presumably the story comes first. And if you luck out with an image that does tell a story, that's just an addition to the strength of what you're doing. The, the visuals are the story. And where did the stories come from? Is that originated by the photographer or is that coming from in-house? The story idea is, well, I have been retired now for about a year and a half. So the geographic is a constantly changing ecosystem. But traditionally, the stories come from writers, photographers, from text editors, photo editors. You know, oftentimes when you're, when you're working with a photographer, you know, the, the conversation is always, well, what, what next, what next, you know, and you just start brainstorming and thinking about you've done X, Y, and Z. What do you want? What do you want to do next? And so often the story proposals that, that I was putting forward were ones that, that I had you know researched and written uh, with a photographer. So, but it wasn't unusual for, you know, a great story to be coming from, from, you know, our text colleagues either, or oftentimes the editor would show up at your desk and say, we need to do a story on this, this, that, or the other thing. And I need you to look into it. So, you know, sometimes, you know, the mandate was, was coming from the top down as well. From from an editorial perspective, beyond Nat Geo, I guess, but still within your edit- editorial sphere, You've edited a lot of best of photography books, best of collections. How do you go about choosing images? As you say, there are millions of phenomenal pictures out there. How do you even begin to start whittling that down? And kind of a follow on to that, are there some images from those that will always stay with you? And, And if so, maybe what are they? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you wish you could, someone would say, okay, you can do the best of and you get 500, but you know, it's always, oh, you get the best of and you get 50 or you get 100. That's challenging. You know, obviously, there are just images that stand the test of time. They're as impactful today as they were the first time you saw them. And then there's always that sort of other surprise that an image that you looked at initially and thought, eh, it's okay, over time really does sort of reveal itself to, to, to be something that does have staying power. You know, when you're putting together those anthologies, again, it's the challenge is you've got to have the, that, that visual variety. You know, not, not only do you, do you need species representation, but you need, you know, geographic representation. It, it, it can't be in, unless you wanted to be the, the 100 best images out of Africa or Yellowstone or whatever it is, you know, you do have to sometimes let some of your favorites go. And, um, you know, that's that's just the nature of, of editing because you're not going to give you 101. You're going to give you 100. <laughs> so <laughs> and so the, the follow-up, are there any that stick in your mind? What, you know, are there pictures that maybe ones you've used or ones that you haven't used that just they're there and they won't go away? Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got some some favorites, of course. 
you know, I probably worked over the course of my career most closely with with Nick Nichols. And Nick has made images that will always, for me, be the best be just the, the best of the best. And, you know, some of them are, are very complicated and some of them are actually, you know, quite simple. When when we did the Serengeti lion, he made a portrait of a, a lion called Sea Boy. Mm-hmm. It's just a beautiful, beautiful photograph. And I, and I never tire of, of looking at it. You know, when he did the Indogi, which was really his first absolute foray into natural history photography, I think Nick sort of upended uh, the way in which people were making natural history imagery at that time. I mean, he, there's a an, an image that he made of a, of a charging uh, elephant in the Zangabai. I, I think it wound up on the cover of the magazine when the story published, and it was it was quite a controversial image. But but for me, it's one of my my favorite Nick photographs. You know, and it, over 20 years ago, we made that frame. To me, it's it's as fresh and as powerful as as it ever was. Brian Scary. Wow. <laughs> you know, he's just, uh, you know, what his the last story that he published was on on whales. And he made photographs of, of belugas that I don't think anyone's ever, ever come close to making, you know, belugas in shallow water with an underwater camera trap, you know, playing with each other, passing rocks back and forth. I mean, just beautiful images and, and fresh behavior. It's those those things that really they just stick with you. You know, Tom Peshak, again, anything from, from Brent Sturton. I mean, for me, Brent Sturton, the, the photograph that we published in his, his rhino story, the dead rhino dehorned that went on to win Wildlife Photographer of the Year. That was, the, the image itself was so hard to look at, so powerful, you know, summed up the rhino crisis. But for that photograph to be recognized by the Natural History Museum was just absolutely astonishing. It said so much about Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition and how brave they were to to put that image out there as as the overall winner. But I think it, it really... It really underscored that, that conservation photography is critical to storytelling these days. So, yeah, there are a lot of images out there that I'm, again, so proud to have had any hand in, in bringing to the pages of National Geographic. But it's all about the photographers. They're the ones doing the work. Clearly, you've got an incredibly well-honed, advanced visual IQ. Your your knowledge of what makes a great image, what's a powerful image, is, I'm going to say, second to none. But I'm curious where that came from, because you said you didn't start necessarily in the visual world. And yet, is this something that developed over time? Is it innate? Did you work on it? Was it just being around it? Where where's it come from? I, I do think it's... You know, first of all, National Geographic gave me just so many opportunities. And as I said earlier, I, I had great mentors, both with um, uh, other photo editors and, and the photographers. I mean, the photographers uh, were incredibly generous, being willing to work with someone who was, you know, at the time fairly new. And I think fair to say fairly inexperienced compared to some others. I, I think it was, you know, one thing that happens at the National Geographic is it's not like someone sends you 50 images. You know, it, it wasn't unusual, especially with with camera trapping, you know, to get a shipment of 50,000 images, you know, and, and, and to have a story ultimately, you know, sometimes be over 200,000 images. So you're looking at a lot of work. And what for me, what 
what was interesting was to see that every photographer worked in a very different way. I felt that I had to approach every photographer's work in a very different way because it's it's about a conversation, really. And as you're going through their work and you're, you're really, it's as much about understanding their approach and how they see and how they how they work their way up to that that moment. So, yeah, I mean, I think I, I looked at Nick's work in a, in a very different way than I looked at you know, Chris John's work or, or Brian Scarry's work or Jen Hayes' work, because they're all very, they're all very different. And I, and I think that approach allowed me to really understand how they worked, what they saw, what mattered to them, and how we could best work together. You know, obviously, for me as an editor, unless I think someone is really pulling the wrong frame, if, if, if I like this frame and you like that frame, it's your vision. And I'm going to want to go with the one that you feel the strongest about, unless I really think you're making a mistake and then we're going to have to have a talk about it. But, you know, so it's really more about, for me, understanding how they see, how they work, and then how to really more about how to help craft the narrative and how to how to make sure we're getting that that diversity of imagery that was needed to, to tell the story. But yeah, it was, it was always, it was a conversation, you know, even if you were having it with, you know, the slides, you know, and they were a million miles away, it was still, sometimes I would pull images that Nick made so that when he came back and we went through it together, he would know that I saw that. It didn't work, but I saw that and, and I know what you were trying to do. Didn't work, but I get it. I, I get it. And, and so that, in, in essence, was, was really just about maintaining that connection so that there was constant understanding. It's, it's interesting you're talking about photographers who have original or unusual approaches. And obviously that requires a great knowledge of what people are shooting out there. We recently did a podcast with Jason Edwards, who shoots for Nat Geo, and he was telling us about how he came to get involved and that he contacted Nat Geo when he felt he was ready, and Nat Geo already knew who he was. Is that very typical that you're keeping an eye on people that you've never used in the background? Yes, I, I think that um, the photo editors are always watching, thinking, scanning, trying to be as aware of as many photographers out there as, as we possibly can. That really was a, a silver lining uh, when, when COVID hit because you couldn't throw people on a plane and send them wherever you wanted them to go. You, you really had to all of a sudden be much more tapped into who was working locally. And then I, I will say my colleagues, the, the photo editors at the magazine, were just incredible at being able to, to pivot and call on people that they had been keeping an eye on for, for a very long time. Another thing that that happens, at least you know, for me, was that I would I would meet photographers, you know, at, at various events, and you know, see their work, and you see that there's something there that they're not quite ready yet, but there's something to, to pay attention to, and so you do, you stay in touch, and you know, you 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 know, if there's something small that comes along, and you think oh, this could be sort of a good you know trial run, you know, you try to steer it their way. I think it's really about, you know, meeting people, liking what you see, even if they're not quite ready yet, and then and just nurturing the relationship over time. Jasper Dost and I must have met 10 times over the years. 
We just stayed in touch. And then there was just this moment where I realized, okay, he is more than ready. He's, he's just doing absolutely fantastic work. You know, Charlie Hamilton James, you know, when Charlie and I met, you know, he, he had just won uh, the Panda for, you know, his film, um, uh, The Halcyon River, My Halcyon River. And I thought, oh, you're, you know, no way, <laughs> you know, you're doing, you're doing such great, you know, film work, but I, I don't think so. But we, you know, he was determined and we stayed in touch and we stayed in touch and we stayed in touch. And, you know, a, again, Charlie was really driven to, to grow as not only a photographer, but as, as a storyteller. And I think he went on to, to do some of the um, the most important work that we've done in years at the magazine and, and made really, really fantastic images. So it, it really is about, you know, sometimes it's it's the slow road. You just you just don't don't walk away because someone's not ready for prime time yet. If, if you think you see something there, just keep the relationship going. Sounds like there's been uh, a lot of mentorship in your role, a lot of mentoring of photographers, kind of these young photographers or, or photographers that you've discovered that, that aren't quite ready. If you had maybe one bit of advice to someone wanting to elevate themselves, would it be stick to it or, or have you got some other nugget gem that, that is worth knowing? I, look, I think right now this is, a, this is a really tough career to make a go with fewer and fewer publications every year. You know, I, I see a lot of photographers, you know, taking on so many other things, it, whether it's video, whether it's workshops, whatever it is to sort of keep it all together. So it's tough. It, it's hard to know what's the right advice to give people. If you, we can stick with it and make a go of it, more, more power to you. But I, I understand how really challenging it would be for people right now trying, trying to, not only trying to get their, you know, feet on the ground, but, you know, be consistently hired. So, you know, hats off to everyone who's, who's able to, to stick with it. I think there, there are a couple of really important things early on in your career. Photo editors love to do portfolio reviews because, again, it's, a, it's an opportunity to meet new photographers. And what I think any photographer needs to take away from those encounters is, is really twofold. The reviews are always meant to help. They're not meant to hurt you. So listen, listen to the critiques, because when, when a photo editor is sitting there and looking at your work and giving you that advice, the last thing they want to do is make you feel bad. They, they want to find a way to hone in on what you're doing really well and try to encourage you to see that and stick with it. The editors are the people who are going to be doing the, the commissioning. You know, they're going to buy your work. So listen to them. They, they are there to help you. And I think the other thing that's really important is that, you know, again, along the way, when I've seen work that I, I think has promise, I always say to someone, feel free to stay in touch. Feel free to stay in touch. Now, getting in touch doesn't mean that you're going to be at the top of someone's to-do list. It means that, oh, okay, so-and-so just wrote, I'm going to really try to get back to them as soon as I can. So if someone says stay in touch, but you, you know, and you write to them and you don't hear back right away, don't, don't necessarily take that as you, you, you've been dumped or they deleted the email. <laughs> it just means everyone has has sort of limited capacity in the course of the day, but they're going to get back to you. You know, if they ask you to stay in touch, chances are pretty good they met. I like what I see. Let's see if there's an opportunity some somewhere down the road to, to be able to work together. Take it at face value. But, you know, if you're sitting there, you know, with somebody like Sabine Meyer from Audubon, 
And she's telling you all the reasons why this photograph that your mother might think is the best thing you've ever done doesn't work. Chances are you should probably be listening to Sabine. Make a print for your mother. Listen to Sabine. <laughs> so, yeah. I really honestly feel it's so easy to say it, but finding stories that you can do locally make all the difference in the world because you're not going to get to go sit in the back of a safari car every other week, but you're going to be able to go back to, you know, that that forest or whatever it happens to be and parse out the story and also refine the way that you're you're seeing and thinking about the images that you're making. So I really do think working locally gives every photographer a chance to really grow. And not not only again with the single image and how they approach that, but how they approach storytelling. Fascinating. You've left Nat Geo now, as you mentioned, but I can't see you sitting still doing nothing. So what sort of projects are keeping you busy these days? Well, enormous shoes to fill. Stepped in uh, as the the chair for Wildlife Photographer of the Year after Roz Kidman Cox's uh, tenure was over. Uh, so that's a three year commitment and really the, the thrill of a lifetime. So I'm doing that. I'm as you both know, I work with the Exposure Festival, which is just a delight. And then my husband is uh, a designer, so we've been working on a number of projects together with some photographers. So just just enough to stay busy. And you're still keeping your hand in with the photographers. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that, that's nice about retirement is getting back to editing. Being the deputy and working with my colleagues that way was an amazing opportunity, but I don't think there's anything that's as much fun as editing. One, one last question to wrap up. It's something that intrigues us both. Do you take pictures yourself? <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> I only take pictures of my cats. <laughs> I, I, I bet they're phenomenal I'm... pictures of the cats, and you've got the most amazing photo stories. <laughs> I have such respect for photography that I wouldn't even try to go there. <laughs> no, uh-uh. I, I would be, uh, let's just say when I, when I do take photographs, I delete very quickly. <laughs> I bet you edit them really well, don't you? <laughs> it's beautifully curated on your phone. <laughs> well, you can't go wrong with O'Malley. <laughs> I hear your cats are somewhat mischievous as well. Bad cats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they make us laugh. We do we, Every time a glass gets broken, we say, well, that glass never made us laugh. <laughs> That's a very lovely approach. <laughs> I'm trying to remember that with my two-year-old daughter and my three-year-old dog. I think our listeners wouldn't forgive us if we did actually ask you one extra question. Most location photographers at some point in their life or careers dream of working with Nat Geo. How do they get to do this? First of all, you would need to uh, approach my colleague, uh, Sadie Quarrier. She is the uh, deputy director of photography now at National Geographic or any of the, the photo editors and share your work. You know, my advice was always send your portfolio first. Don't send your ideas because your ideas, they have currency. And you never want to feel that someone took your idea but didn't give you the assignment. So, you know, I would approach a photo editor and I would ask if I could share my portfolio and, and, and start that way. 
you know, it's it's hard, you know, just a finite number of stories a year get published. And, you know, you're competing against some of the, the best photographers in the world, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. That's really always how I advise people to start. Not with your ideas. Show your work. Show your work. And should photographers be choosing their moment? I mean, they've got to reach a certain level of competence before they will be accepted to any degree. So they presumably need to work hard on their photography before they even consider doing that. I think it's, again, it's about refining how you photograph and it's about being able to tell a story. That's that's the most important thing at National Geographic. You've got to be able to tell the story with the, the photographs. You're not just, we don't use the photographs to illustrate the text. I think that's the most important thing to, to keep in mind. It's It's all about visual narrative and style. How do you see? Be a storyteller and then find the pictures to illustrate that story. Again, you're, you're telling the story through your photographs. You're not illustrating the story. You're visualizing the story. The photographs are telling the story. Kathy, that has been, well, as I said at the top, an absolute pleasure and honor to talk to you, but uh, interesting and intriguing in equal measure. Uh, clearly, as we said, your visual IQ is off the scale in terms of your understanding of photography and how it's used and your career is, well, it speaks for itself. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I understand that you thought you wouldn't have anything to say and yet here we are uh, and, and we're still engrossed. And we could go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, guys. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Yes, it's been fantastic. Thank you very much, Kathy.